0: I'm going to be speaking out of Psalm 23 this morning, and uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. How many of you first heard Psalm 23 when you were children, like a long time ago? A lot of you? Was it, how, for how many of you, was it one of the first passages of Scripture maybe that you memorized? Okay, yeah, a fair number of us. It's a pretty familiar passage of Scripture, right? but maybe you haven't heard this version of Psalm 23. So listen to this. The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me into deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy. It For activity's sake, even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done. For my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines my in-basket overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressures shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. I would say that this really is our culture's version of Psalm 23. Even if you haven't heard this version of Psalm 23 before, you've experienced it. Maybe it's not so much the clock that is your dictator. Maybe it's your advisor or dissertation committee if you're, if you're working on a graduate degree. Maybe it's your boss or your supervisor. Maybe it's your health or your hobbies even. Maybe it's your concerns about having enough to retire on or your fears of the future. Maybe, it's, it, maybe it is your desire to please other people, your need for approval. Maybe it's your difficulty in establishing appropriate boundaries. You just have a hard time saying no. Maybe it's your desire for control. You know, it could be any number of things, but a lot of things drive us. They dictate what our lives look like. And whatever drives you has the power to be your dictator. It has the power to dominate your life and to squeeze all of the joy out of it. That's the way so many people live in our culture. They live dominated by drives that squeeze the joy out of them. We talk about being in the rat race. We feel like we're running faster and faster and we're not sure we're going anywhere good. And too often we go through our days feeling tired and weary and frustrated and empty, right? Well, now, here's the Bible's version of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows surely i forgot a line you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever now let me ask you which of you like the bible's version of psalm 23 better than our culture's version i do right yeah So what is it about Psalm 23 that speaks to us? It speaks to us because it shows us that life doesn't have to be lived the way most people live it. It doesn't have to be frenzied and harried and frustrating and empty. It just doesn't. We don't have to be anxious about all the things that we're anxious about. If we know who our God is, We do not have to live the way our culture lives. Psalm 23, when you you get right down, it isn't so much about us. It is about God, about who he is and what he's done and what he's doing in the world. But when we know who he is, it makes all the difference in who we are and how we live. So I want to take a few moments this morning to unpack this this psalm for us. I want to give kind of a big picture, big structure, and then unpack the the phrases of the psalm. And then I want to leave you with two things to think about, ways you can respond to this psalm in this coming week, okay? So here's the big picture. There are two, I think, two major metaphors in this psalm. The first metaphor is of the Lord as shepherd. And then the second metaphor, picking up, starting in verse 5, is about the Lord as a host. Some people think there's a third member, uh, metaphor, the Lord as a guide, but, I, but either way, whether it's two metaphors or three, the idea is the same. We have a God who looks out, who loves us, looks out for us, who guides us, who provides for us, who protects us, who fills us, who renews us. We have a God who gives us grace and peace and hope and direction through all things. Now, in this psalm, there are ten imperfect tense verbs. An imperfect tense is a verb which uh, begins in the past; it's a past tense verb, but which has effects that continue into the present. There are ten of those verbs in this passage, in this in this psalm. So, for example, an imperfect tense verb says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What it means is, I have not wanted, and I will not want. Uh, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He made me lie down and continues to enable me to lie down in green pastures. He restored my soul, and he continues to restore my soul. Past tense with continuing effect. So it's ongoing Action, if you will. What the psalmist is saying by using that is that God is present in our lives all the time. He's active in an ongoing, continuing way to provide for us, to protect us, to lead us, to comfort us, to, to give us all that we need. He's present and active at all times, in all moments, every day, in every situation to every one of his people, to every one of you. He's present and active for your good today. In this place, he's present active in whatever situation you find yourself. God is present active to you and active in your life as an individual as an individual, he's present and active in our lives corporately as a church. You are his people, his church. He loves you with a fierce, a relentless, an unshakable, an everlasting love. That's the big picture of this psalm. Now, let's start looking at some of the phrases. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Our whole system, our whole economic system is built on creating felt needs and satisfying as many wants as possible. He wants to create wants and turn them into felt needs. That's the way our system works. That's not what David's talking about. He's not talking about uh, satisfying every want that our culture can create for us to, to, to have. He's talking about basic needs, real needs. Food, shelter, water, quiet, rest. He's talking about being surrounded by the Lord's presence and grace. Those are the real needs that we have. God, our shepherd, God, our guide, God, our host, gives us what we really need to flourish. All the stuff we really need, and what we really need more than anything is god we need god and he gives us himself he gives us all of himself we are indwelt by the holy spirit of god christ lives inside us the lord is my shepherd i shall not be in want he's given us all that we really need then the text continues the psalm continues he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, this is an interesting... When you, when you, when you read the, 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 the phrase in English, he makes me lie down, it almost seems like he's forcing us to lie down. That's not what the Hebrew phrase really means. What it means is he enables us to rest. He settles us down. It, it, it's got this idea of, of just making it possible for us to be able to settle down to rest. So you... Uh, You can think of a parent who has a fussy child. The child is fussy, crying, you know, just not in a good state, agitated. And then the parent picks up this child and holds the child and starts to speak to the child and and to caress the child and the child starts to calm down. He settles down. This is the image that I think David is thinking about, the kind of image he's thinking about when he says he makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep are flighty. They need the voice of the shepherd. They need to to see the shepherd to be able to calm down, to be at rest. Just like a fussy child needs a parent who's able to calm that child down. God does that for us. When we're tuned into God, when we look to him and recognize his presence, he has the power to settle us regardless of our circumstances. Paul gets at this, uh, Peter, I should say, gets at this when he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares, all your anxieties, cast them all upon him, upon Jesus, because he cares for you. What Peter is saying is you have a God, we have a God who loves us and cares for us so we can give him all of our anxiety and know that he'll take our anxiety and give us his peace. David also says, he leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep apparently cannot drink if the water is flowing. They, they like to be settled. They like it to be quiet, not moving. And what a shepherd does is he looks for places where sheep can find that kind of water. And sometimes, apparently, they'll even stop up a stream, a part of a stream, so that the the current doesn't flow there, so that it's quiet, so that sheep can can drink from that place. So a shepherd does whatever is necessary, whatever needs to be done, to enable his sheep to find a place that, that they will actually drink from. We're the same way. We need quiet and we need peace in order to truly rest. The problem with our world is it's not that kind of world. It's turbulent. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's fast-paced. David knows about that kind of world. uh When David talks about green pastures and he talks about quiet waters, he's not talking about a fantasy world that he created in his mind. Uh, He, this isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff for David. He knows about turbulence. If you look at, if you read the life of David, you know that uh, he experienced civil war. He experienced treachery from his friends and betrayal. You know that he, experienced the death. He saw the death of his beloved son. You know that uh, he made messes of his own life and experienced some of that. Uh, There's murder and there's adultery and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening in his life and in his family and all around him in his nation. But in the midst of that, again and again and again, David is able to enter into God's presence and find green pastures in quiet waters, he's able to find rest. So, when David talks about the Lord being his shepherd, he's not a shepherd in fantasy land. The Lord is a shepherd in the midst of the turbulence and the chaos of real life. And if that's true for David, it can be and is true for us. Amen. Then David continues, he restores my soul. Now, again, this is an interesting term in Hebrew. The literal translation is, he brings me back. So the Lord brings me back, David says. It does, along with that, carry the sense of restoring and repairing. He brings me back and restores and repairs me. But the idea here is that a sheep is lost, and because the sheep is lost and away from the shepherd, it's in trouble. It has no way of getting access to things that it needs to prosper. It doesn't have a way to get at food and drink and shelter and protection. And so in order to restore this sheep, the shepherd has to go and find it and bring it back. Okay? Okay? Now, how do sheep get lost? Think about this. How do sheep get lost? It's not like they wake up in the morning and say, you know, I think I'm going to try to escape today. I feel like exploring, so I'm going I'm to kind of hide, and uh, when, a, when a shepherd turns his back, I'm just going to take off. Sheep don't think that way. At least I don't think they do. Okay? I'm guessing that what happens with sheep is they start to graze. And they're not paying attention to to where they are, and they just kind of follow the grass, and they follow it a bit, and then they kind of look up. All of a sudden, realize nobody else is there. They just got distracted by what they were doing, or maybe they're they're with the flock, and the shepherd is there, and, and the predator they they smell or they see a predator, and they get spooked, and they start running. They lose track of their shepherd, and keep on running, and then all of a sudden they're they're just again they're lost. So, whether they get distracted or whether they get spooked, somehow they get lost. They're far from where they should be, where they need to be, and the shepherd has to go find them and bring them back. Maybe that's the way we get lost, too. I don't know. I don't think that most of us wake up in the morning and say, you know, I think I'm going to run away from Jesus today. I think I'm going to try to hide from Jesus, I'm going to go exploring. I think what happens with a lot of us, what happens with me, is that we, start do, we're, we get caught up in the things that we're doing. And we get into them, and, uh, and then all of a sudden we look up and say, wait a minute, I, I've been following this trail, and uh, I'm not sure where I am, and I'm not sure where Jesus went, but I'm not there either. I, you know, I can get distracted. Sometimes I can get spooked, too. Something happens in my life. I get some bad news or, you know, whatever. And I get fearful and anxious. And instead of looking to Jesus, I start looking at the problem. And the more I look at the problem, the bigger it gets. And it just kind of consumes me and it surrounds me and it cuts me off from Jesus. Right? Isn't that the way it happens for you too? We can get lost so easily, either through distraction or through, or through fear and anxiety. And when that happens, we need the shepherd to come find us, to bring us back. The, uh, the verb here that David uses is a causative verb. What that means is it's the verb, is that the, 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 it's the, the action has to be done to us. The action causes the effect wanted. What David is saying is that sheep cannot find their way back by themselves. Whether they're literal sheep or human sheep, we can't find our way back by ourselves. We need the shepherd to come looking for us. And that's in fact what the shepherd does. We've been celebrating the Christmas season for the last few weeks. What do we celebrate? We celebrate the fact that that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever, that, that whoever believes might not perish but have everlasting life. We celebrate the fact that God, the God of the universe, the God who created the universe, entered into space and time, entered into human history, took on human flesh, and lived in our midst. Why did he do that? Because we were lost, and he came looking for us to find us and to carry us into his presence. God keeps coming for us, keeps looking for us to bring us back. And all of this stuff, the, quiet, the green pastures and the quiet waters, the leading and the guiding, the seeking and the finding, all of that is meant to to make us alive and full and deep and rested and joyful in His presence. Let me go back to that phrase, He restores my soul. The reason that we need our souls restored is because our souls get damaged. They get damaged because we keep running away. We keep getting lost. And every time we're far from our shepherd, our, sho- our souls get beat up. We at, at its core, a restored soul, a healthy soul, is a soul that's in communion with God and in community with God's people. Anything that takes us away from God and away from God's people causes damage to our soul. A restored soul is a soul that has put the full weight of its trust in God. A soul that surrendered its will to God's will. It's char- characterized by attentiveness to God. It's characterized by gratitude and contentment with the Lord's provision. It's a surrender to the Lord's will. At it, again, at its core, it's a pursuit of Jesus as our greatest treasure. It's knowing where our treasure is and going after him. And what threatens and damages our soul is the fact that we are sinful and idolatrous people. The sin of idolatry where we value something or someone more than we value God. The sin of unbelief and fear where we don't trust in God's power and God's wisdom and God's guidance and character in all circumstances. We believe that something is too big for God to handle. The sin of self-absorption, being so, so caught up with ourselves that we forget about God and drift away from him. Drift away from close relationship with him. The sin of pride, trusting in our own strength, our own wisdom or ability or skill. The sin of laziness maybe or lack of discipline, not doing the things that keep us connected with with Jesus. Now, how does our Lord restore us? Often it's by letting us run away until we come to our senses. There's this great line, uh, uh, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman wrote a book called Cry of the Soul, where they talk about how our emotions reveal to us where we are with God. And in that book there's this line that says, God has so, God's passion is to rig the world so that we are compelled to deal with whatever blocks us from being like his glorious son. God's passion is to rig the world so that we are compelled to deal with whatever blocks us from becoming like his glorious son. What God wants for us is to be like Jesus. What he wants is to conform in us the character of Jesus. And God will allow us to reap the consequences of our actions so that we come to our senses and say, God, help me. God, come and find me and bring me back. Okay? The Lord restores us by not letting us get away, not letting us continue in this stuff that will keep us from becoming like Jesus. He does that because he loves us fiercely. It's a tough, committed love. He's so committed to us, to loving us and wanting what's best for us, that he won't let us slide. He sticks with us. He stands with us. But He doesn't get sloppy with us. Doesn't let us get sloppy with Him. That's a hard love. That's a deep love. We ought to thank God for that kind of love. Because it's that kind of love it helps us to be who we were created to be before the foundation of the earth we were created to become like jesus thanks be to god david continues even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, the Hebrew phrase here can be tra- translated as "valley of the shadow of death," or "valley of the deepest shadow." Uh, in in a number of places in Israel, at the bottom of a the valley, there, there are these deep, you know, the, the winter streams have cut these long, deep crevices where it's just dark, and it's dangerous. They're valleys of the deepest shallow. There are also valleys of death. What happens is they're places that shepherds would have to take their flocks sometimes in order to find graves, and they'd have to go through these to get where they needed to go. But there are places where a sheep could slip and fall and be killed. So David saw a lot of those. But he also saw them not just literally, but metaphorically. I, I talked a minute ago about the kind of life that David lived, chaotic, turbulent, violent, broken, all around him. Maybe that's what David was also thinking about when he wrote Psalm 23. But what he's talking about is that the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deepest shadow is a place that's dangerous and it's scary and it's frightening. It's life-threatening. And we all find ourselves in those kinds of places sometime in our lives. That's the truth for us. The valley of death, the valley of deep shadow is a section of the trail of life that cannot be avoided by any of us. can't be avoided. There's no bypass, there's no magical escape. The only way forward is through. The only way forward is through. Through the valley of sin, the valley of death, Now, some people endure loss and trauma and they allow themselves to think, to believe that they're trapped in the middle of it and they're always going to be trapped in this dark valley. And often the biggest problem when we're in Death Valley isn't the valley itself, but the fear that it can generate. It's a fear to become so big that we can't see God anymore. And don't recognize he's right there with us to lead us through. And even for some of us, it's not even the the presence in the deep valley, the dark valley, the valley of death, but the fear of being in it eventually at some point that that. Clouds our eyes and cripples us and keeps us stuck. Some of us are chronic worriers. We project ahead, we anticipate the death of valleys that might come, and we get trapped in fear. I know a little bit of that too. Both my parents uh, died of dementia related causes. Both of them had very difficult end periods in their life. The last two years of my dad's life, he was kind of in a catatonic state. He, he, did, he was kind of frozen. He couldn't move. He didn't speak. Had no idea if he could hear anything when we would be with him. It, it just didn't register anything. And... Uh, About three years ago, I started experiencing some weird physical kinds of stuff in my own body. My feet started becoming numb, and I had all kinds of tests done, and they couldn't figure out what was causing that. And my speech was getting slurry, still gets slurry sometimes. These weird muscle weaknesses where it goes, and then it it passes. And, you know, I have no idea what's going on with me. I've had a lot of tests done, and uh, I really don't know. They don't know. Doctors don't know. They've eliminated some things, but they don't really know what's causing this stuff in me. And in the back of my head, I keep thinking, I wonder if I'm going to end up like my dad. And if I let myself stay there, I can get trapped right in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. And I have to keep telling myself, my life does not belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. And whatever happens to my life, Jesus means it for good. And I, even if I go through the worst valley of the shadow of death that I can imagine, Jesus is still going to be with me and he will take me through. Maybe in this life, maybe in the next life, but he will take me through. My destiny isn't the valley of the shadow of death. My destiny is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm guessing that Many of you, maybe all of you in one way or another are feeling something of the valley of the shadow of death right now, today. Maybe it's health concerns, maybe it's financial concerns, maybe it's family stuff, relational issues, maybe it's stuff happening with your kids or your friends. There's stuff going on that scare the hell out of you. You need to know that the Lord is with you. Jesus is with you right in the middle of whatever scares you. And because He's with you, you do not have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. John writes in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good sh- talking about Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, though, am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, when you, he's saying to you, when you are in the midst of your deepest fears, I'm not going to run away. I'm there and I have laid down my life for you So really, the things you should be most afraid of, sin and Satan and death, I've already conquered for you. I've dealt with everything and anything that can separate you from me. You do not have to be afraid. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors Amen? So David continues. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I, you know, I, I've read this, psalm. Um, I don't know how many hundreds of times. And I always kind of got hung up on this phrase, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies, what's that about? And uh, just earlier this week, I read this uh, commentary by Ken Bailey, Kenneth Bailey. And he says that what David is talking about is you know, the Lord here is presented as a host who prepares a meal. He's a welcome host, prepares a meal, and he does it publicly. He does it in such a way that even the enemies of the person receiving the meal know about it that he does and what happens what happens when you do something good for somebody else that, that is hated the people who hate that person hate you too right that's the way it works in the world you know the friend of my enemy is my enemy kind of thing well think about why Jesus was crucified. Who crucified him? The religious hierarchy of Israel. Why did they crucify him? Because he spent time with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus prepared a, p- a table, if you will. He prepared a meal. He spent time with people who were despised. And he did it publicly. He didn't do it you know, in the dark. He said, I love these people and I'm gonna be with them and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to save them, and I don't care who knows. And he was crucified for it. What Jesus is saying to us is that he's gone public with his love for us. He's going to love us in the midst of Whoever our enemies are, in our case, it is sin sin and Satan and death. He's gone public with his love. He doesn't care who knows or how they respond back. He's gone public with his love for us in the face of whatever is arrayed against us. So it's another way of saying he's in it for keeps. We celebrate the Lord's table together here at Journey, usually the first uh, Sunday of each month. We do this because of what Jesus has done for us. He's laid down his life for us, he's forgiven us, he's forgiven our sins. He's laid down his life as our Good Shepherd to save us. What we experience at Lord's table is Jesus preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies, the enemies of our souls. It's a visible symbol of the Lord's conquering of those enemies. Because Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us, lay down his life on our behalf, the power of sin and Satan and death has been broken. That's what we remember, that's what we celebrate every time we celebrate the Lord's table together. Because of that, our cup overflows. It overflows. This is an expression of God's extravagant provision for us, extravagant, extravagant care for us. It speaks of God's overflowing generosity toward us. You know, there are two ways that people can live their lives. They can live their lives with a scarcity mentality, or they can live their lives with an abundance mentality. If you see your life is dominated by scarcity, you lead lives of stinginess. But if you see your life is dominated by abundance, you lead lives of generosity. Our God is a God of abundance. We are the people who sit at the Lord's table and feast on his goodness and generosity to us. And we're called to live lives of generosity. Generous with our time and talents and energy and money and encouragement and affirmation and welcome and hospitality and grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're called to live lives of generosity. Because we follow a God who treats us that way. We follow a God who is generous us, our cup overflows. And then David, thinking about all this, comes to this big, grand conclusion. He says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he uses this Hebrew word, verb, radap. This word, you know, will follow me, it's just a weak verb. The verb is used to talk about a hunter pursuing uh, his prey, or an army pursuing the enemy. It's a strong word, and what Jesus is saying, what, what David is saying, rather, is that our God pursues us. I mean, He chases us down, not to destroy us, but to pour our love and goodness into our lives. He chases us down to capture us, to bring us home into his home so that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God pursues us because he loves us. About a month ago, I had this kind of mini meltdown. It was kind of like a little panic attack. I just felt overwhelmed with the pressure of all things I was trying to do. Things that were important, that I cared about, but I was feeling stretched too thin. Felt like I was failing in all of them. You know, I was, you know, I was get, I'm working on a doctorate and it just felt like it was a black hole. It didn't matter how much I did, there was so much more to do, it was never enough. And I'm working on some city stuff, the prayer movement in the city and networking of pastors and churches, uh, this thing called Worcester Convoy of Hope and some other stuff, uh, trying to build bridges and relationships, and I just felt like it was we were I was getting stuck. Didn't see progress that I wanted to see. Um, I was doing some stuff here, a journey, and that wasn't going along as smoothly as I wanted it to go either. I have a brother going through a really hard time. It just seemed like all this stuff was happening, and I had this mini panic attack, a meltdown. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you experience that sometimes. There are times in our lives where it just seems like everything just kind of comes at once and it piles on us and it feels like we're getting smothered. And so I started reflecting, why do I feel so panicked? Why why am I feeling so panicked? And uh, what was clear to me was, was that in the midst of all the busyness, I let myself get lost. I got distracted and I lost track of where Jesus is. I lost track of where I was in relation to Jesus. I cut myself off from Jesus. I didn't spend time with him. I didn't talk to him. I didn't uh, stay attentive to his presence. All of that. So for the last few weeks, I've been trying to reconnect, if you will, with Jesus. I've been trying to let him find me and bring me back. I've been trying to start each day with him in his presence in a real way, not just a hurried way. And Jesus is kind of uh, restoring my soul. What I'd like to ask you to do this week is let Jesus restore your soul. So two things in specific, in particular. First of all, ask God to search your heart. David writes in Psalm 139, Search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to show you if you're drifting away from him. Ask him to show you if you've been distracted from wholeheartedly following Jesus. Ask God to show you if if you've let any kind of sin get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Just ask him to show you. And the second thing I'd like to ask you to do is to read Psalm 23 every day for this next week. Read it in the morning when you get up and read it at night before you go to bed. And there are six verses in Psalm 23. So I'd like to ask you to take a verse each day. There's six, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Take a verse each day and just keep thinking about it throughout the day. Meditate on it. And if something pops into your head about it, write it down. Just write it down. At the end of the week, look at what you've written down and see if there's a pattern. See if there's something that God is revealing to you. Don't let anything separate you from your shepherd. Don't let anything pull you away from Jesus. I'd like to close our service with this. I'd like to ask you all to stand up, please. If you're able to stand, stand. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Psalm 23 out loud again, the Bible's version. What I'd like you to do is to close your eyes. Close your eyes and and kind of have your hands out, palms up. And as I'm reading Psalm 23, if you can pray this prayer, pray, Lord, I want you to be my shepherd. Help me to trust you. Follow you wherever you lead. Lord, remove from me anything that keeps me apart from you. Okay? So here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I...